0: Good morning. Uh, I want to welcome all of you who are here, but also uh, we have a number of people every Sunday uh, watching online uh, via our live stream, whether it's on Facebook or off of our website. So good morning to you too. It's great to be with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're moving on to week 6. In our study. And again, we have the study guides at the back that I really encourage you to grab one. Even if you're only visiting here and you want to maybe follow on with us, we have lots. So if you want to follow on in the weeks that are ahead and you're not here, you can watch online. All of our podcasts are on iTunes and we have a video channel on YouTube. And you can watch the sermon or listen to it and follow along. It would be really great to have you go through this study with us. And so, like I said, we're in the. We're in the the sixth week, and uh, it's interesting. This is now, we started, I, I think it was chapter two, if you remember quite clearly, where Paul uh, shifted his attention. He's writing this letter to his protege, Timothy. And the idea is, is that he's, uh, well, first of all, trying to answer some troubling questions. Timothy's having a struggle in Ephesus, trying to lead this church. He's a young man. But that's not the only reason. There's false teachers, there's all kinds of uh, things that he has to deal with, but he starts in chapter 2 laying out for Timothy and also for us 2,000 years later, approximately, um, what it's to look like in the church. And as we're going to see today, we're actually going to arrive at the two verses where Paul says, this is why I'm writing the letter to you. It's about how you ought to believe and ought to behave in the church. And so we saw at the beginning in chapter 2 that he's beginning to talk about what happens here on a Sunday morning, essentially. And he starts off with, well, the first thing you should do is pray. And and he actually points at it this way. Everyone should pray. And our prayers should be supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving being made for all people, not just us in the church, but everyone in our world today for our rulers and leaders. And yes, yes, for the people of Israel and the things that are going on in our world today. Yeah, we should be praying. And that everyone should pray. Well, then he moves on just a little bit later, I believe it's in verse 8, and he says that secondly, I desire that men pray in every place. And he starts off with the men, speaking to the men, and I love the fact that, again, we see in Scripture some uh, just plain language that says, in every place. And so he's saying that this is the rule of thumb for the church, not just in Ephesus, but in every place. In another epistle, letter, he talks about, as is... As is the norm in all the churches, we should do this. And so he's speaking about what we should be doing. So he speaks to the guys, the men, and he says, listen, when you come to church, gentlemen, by the way, you should pray. And I highlighted on that week that it's a little bit like, you know, sometimes in a prayer meeting, the ladies are right in there right away. Like, the ladies are ready to pray, and the guys are, men, you should pray. But you should also come with a certain posture. You should come with holy hands and you should be leaving all of your your battling and your fighting and your angst and quarreling behind. And then he also speaks to the ladies and says, you know, like, your posture should be this when you come to the gathering of the church. It should be about your inner beauty and your heart of worship for the Lord and not the way that you adorn yourself or the way that you dress. Then he addresses what is called the learning and the teaching in the church, and that was fun, wasn't it? He, He talks about who should be learning. Well, of course, we should all be learning when the Word of God is being proclaimed and preached. But he made it pretty clear to us that he addresses this, and he says that the women are to learn, to be learning the Word of God, just like the men, alongside the men, and the men are to teach. And and then he moves on, and he speaks, like we saw last week, specifically to what kind of men should be doing this and also leading the church. And they're called qualified men. (laughs) They need to have specific qualifications in order to be able to do this, to be, what we saw last week, the ruling overseers, elders of the local churches. These are the men who are to preach and teach at the gatherings of the church. So today, Paul's going to introduce us to another role in the church. Not exactly an office, but it's another important role in the church. Before I read the text today, I want to highlight a couple of things that came to my mind this past week, related to last Sunday's message, actually the last few Sundays, but really last Sunday's, and it was, we had a great discussion at Missional Community Group, but it, it made me think of this, and I, I want to encourage the ladies here this morning, because, you know, we talked about the men being the elders, the men being the preachers. Yeah, we did. But currently at the Rock Church, we have five elders, five men, who are married to five incredibly godly women. And so I just want to encourage you, you're well represented here. You really, really are. You know, my wife, Janice, you all know her. Sunday School Maven. Uh, um, I've said this many times before. I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing today because she's encouraged me. She has helped me immensely. And we know some of the other elders here, uh, uh, you know, that Kevin married to Pat, uh, an amazing woman. If you've ever been in a prayer meeting with Pat, you've heard, you've heard the Holy Spirit pray, okay? And so that's really encouraging. And then we have Joey and Jen, young couple and, and a young woman who's an incredibly godly and deep woman. Again, you get into discussions with her spiritually, and it's really encouraging. Of course, we have Rudy and Jean. And Jean's away this weekend. She's a medical doctor, so she's up in Williams Lake doing what they call a locum. And, uh, but an incredible support to Rudy, who's now an associate pastor as well at the Rock Church. And finally, we have Gavin and Dawn. I think they're both upstairs today helping the, with the kids. That's a really major... So I just want to encourage you. That's important that you know that. The other thing that uh, needs to be said, and it'll come out a little bit today in the message, and that is, is that eldership in the local church is plural. It's a plurality of elders. It's not like I, I am, quote, the lead pastor of the Rock Church, but I, I don't have a, um, you know, a tiebreaker vote. I, I don't, I'm not the leader of this church. I'm one of the elders. Plurality is really important in the church. And as we'll see, that was part of the pattern that Jesus set up for his church. So I want to read our text for today, then I'm going to pray one more time. I just thought I'd give you those little highlights up first before we did that. So read with me. We're going to begin in verse 8, and we're going to read about this interesting role in the church called deacons. Anybody heard of that? Deacons. Read with me. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. Let's pray. So, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you again for this day. Lord, what an what awesome thing to come into uh, a place like this, any place for that matter, but a, just a, a room like this this morning where um, yeah, we were encouraged by Nick in, in worship to, to come here and to silence our hearts and our minds to uh, be able to focus on you It's the only reason why we're here. Um, We're here to worship you, our God and Savior. We're, We're here to acknowledge that you are the one true God, and that you sent your Son into this world, Jesus, to die for us and in our place, and that he did do that, and then he rose from the dead, and he ascended, and he is with you today, right now, interceding for us. And then you sent the Holy Spirit to us, to guide us and to live within us, and to give us this assurance, as we sang today, that Jesus is coming again. And we have all this now. Today, we know these things. So, Lord, thank you for that. I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I love your word. <laughs> Lord, we, we pray that you would help all of us to love your word, to trust it with all of our hearts, even, even the parts that are hard to understand. I just pray, Lord, that you would bless uh, the words that you've given to me for today. And I pray that you would just, uh, yeah, encourage us by what we're going to hear. In Jesus' worthy name, I pray. Amen. So I've shared this before, and I'm going to repeat it again. Uh, But uh, when I became a Christian at 23 years of age as uh, an inhaling rock and roll drummer with very long hair in downtown Toronto, um, as an ex-Catholic, I had to know right away, I had to understand, first of all, this, you know? I really, I I had, because it wasn't really read or open too much in the church, and I'm not being critical that I went to as a kid and was an altar boy and rang the bells, okay? Um, But I had to also try to understand what does leadership in this Protestant church look like? Because again, as a Catholic, I understood the order and what it was like. And, and it, it, it took a few years. I mean, I've been studying the subject, as I said, for like 40 years. I'm still studying it. That's why I'm preaching it and teaching it, because I'm still looking into it and trying to learn more deeply what it means. But, but a little bit of a light bulb moment came on for me many, many years ago, and it's still refreshed in my mind. And that was the, the whole idea. And you've heard me say it before. Um, we want to know what Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my Church, we want to know what He has in mind, and so that, that that has stuck with me to this day. Still want to look at it when people question some of the things that we do here and why i 'm like okay let 's look at it. What did Jesus have in mind and so last week, I referred to it as his succession plan, and I think that 's a, a good way to think about it and I, I know some of you mentioned to me uh, this past week, hey i had never thought of it that way, that Jesus actually had a succession plan. Well, yeah, I mean, we know that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, by the way, they were God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. Eternally, that's who they are. And they are today, and they will be forever. But they had a plan, didn't they? I mean, you read Genesis 1 2, they had a plan. They still have a plan. And so we, it's always been that. And then in Genesis 3, we fall, Adam and Eve fall, they sin, sin comes into this world. What's the plan? God the Father tells Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that here's the plan. A woman will conceive a child and he will crush the serpent's head. Amen? Yeah. Did that happen? Yes. Jesus was born. Jesus came into this world. And then 30 years after basically living in, obs- in obscurity, you know, <laughs> being a good boy because he was sinless. None of us have children like that. That would be nice. At 30 years of age, he begins his public ministry. And what does he do? He goes to two fishermen on two men on on the sea, and he says, you guys, follow me. And that was the beginning of the next part of the plan. So he called men to begin with to follow him. But of course, we know that many men and women, 120 by the time that he's dead, buried, crucified, and risen from the dead are still with him. And the number is including men and women. But we also know about a year into his ministry life, he prayed one night with the Father, and between the two of them, they came up with the names of 12 men who were disciples that were following him, and they became his apostles. And so these 12 men would, as the Scripture tells us, lay the foundation for what is today the church. Paul tells us to the same church in Ephesus where Timothy is the pastor, he wrote in Ephesians in chapter 2 these words, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he's speaking to all of the people in Ephesus who are now Christians in the church. You got Jewish people who are believing. You got pagans who are believing. And no longer are any of you strangers or aliens to the faith of God. You're in the church. You're members of the household of God. And then he says, he goes on to say, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. I mean, we're we're talking three verses here. (laughs) Encapsulates an awful lot about the church. So the foundation that the apostles laid was actually threefold. The foundation was the continuing proclamation of the kingdom of God. They continued proclaiming the kingdom of God that Jesus preached for three and a half years. They continued that. Secondly, a few of them anyway, not only did they write this that we have here today, the foundation, which is the word of God, but they also helped others write the scripture like Luke, who walked around and followed Paul for many, many years. And Luke also interviewed many other other of the apostles who knew Jesus so that he could write the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. And so they laid that foundation, and then the last foundation was, especially the Apostle Paul, planting churches. They planted churches. And then the unique thing about this succession plan is, of course, we've got the apostles. They're leading it out in Acts 2, 3, 4, 5. They're the ones leading it out. And then we begin to see a pattern of baton passing, where the apostles start to also involve men who are going to be called overseers and elders in the church. And they began to appoint them. So finally, the apostles begin to pass the baton, as we saw. But we also saw last week an interesting part where the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, he's in a church where he acknowledges himself when he's writing again to the churches in Asia Minor, which would have been the church in Ephesus as well. He says, as an apostle and a fellow elder. So so now we have in the churches, we have apostles (laughs) who are now also fellow elders, and we see that pattern beginning to expand in the New Testament from that point. And of course, we know after the last apostle dies, the apostle John, there are no more apostles, capital A apostles, amen? I have to say that because there are some people today, false teachers, who are suggesting that, no, 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 there's a second round of apostles coming, and they claim to be apostles, there aren't. That was it. And the leadership of the church at that point in time was passed on to the elders who hold the role of leadership in the local church from that day, I suggest to you, until today. So the question is, this morning, where did these deacons come from? Where did deacons come from? I mean, we we just read Paul saying deacons and some qualifications and so forth. Well, as the church gets going, most of you know this story, this church is going and, and it's going reasonably well. Reasonably well, on the day of Pentecost, three to 5,000 souls are baptized and the church begins. And it keeps growing and multiplying and doing really, really well. But then in Acts chapter six, an interesting thing happens. There is a little bit of a dispute going on in the church. There are these Hellenists who are Greeks who are having a little bit of a dispute with their Jewish brothers and sisters because according to the Hellenists, our widows aren't getting a fair division of the food and supplies. And so there's this this problem going on within the church. And of course, you you know where people go when there's a problem in the church, right? They go to the pastor. In that day, they went to the apostles. And so it's very interesting. What was the apostles' solution? Well, in Acts chapter 6, we read this. And the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, he goes on, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now pause there for one second, okay? (laughs) They're going to serve food and serve tables. Qualification, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Members of the household of God, I would suggest. He then goes on to say, but we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I love that this kind of thing when we see it in scripture because we see patterns developing. And the pattern that we see here is the church is growing. It's increasing in numbers. Like exponentially growing. Like we wish the church in Squamish would grow today. The enemy, Satan, number two, doesn't like that. And so what does he do? Well, he stirs up trouble within the church. (laughs) That's what he does. He gets one group of people thinking this about the other group of the people, or theological things, or false teachers, and there's an issue. But thirdly, what we see is that good leaders, godly leaders, step up. And they lead. And do what they're supposed to do. And then we read in verse 7, the church responds, and it says this, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even, you could add the word here, became obedient to the faith. Leadership's important. It's necessary. And we've been going over that the last few weeks, but I love that pattern that we see here in this word here. So some suggest that the office or the role of deacons begins here. I'm not so sure about that, but the pattern certainly is there that we're going to see. <clears throat> so what is clear, though, is that the apostles did establish a distinction between their role in the church, that governing oversight role in the church, from the other distinct role in the church, one that would be passed on to the elders and so forth. That role, of course, is to, dis- to devote themselves to prayer, preaching the word, and leading the church as good shepherds. So now, finally, before we move on into our text and the qualifications of deacons, I, I want us to see this as well. The, the linkage of elders and deacons was an established pattern of the, the early church. It really was. Um, and, and I think sometimes we, we and I'm going to point this out in a minute, but maybe we, we've been in churches where we haven't seen that. <laughs> and so we might question that but Paul actually opens his words to the church in Philippi. And this is just one example of where we see the churches had overseers, which is elders, and deacons. Philippians 1.1 says this, Paul writing, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, look at these words, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And so, First of all, of course, note that Paul is with Timothy. This is when Paul's probably in prison at this time, and Timothy, I don't think, is in prison with him at this time, but, you know, Timothy was being uh, mentored, discipled by Paul to eventually become the pastor in Ephesus. And so he's with him at this time. I love the fact that he uses the word diakonai here, which we're going to see in a second. It's the word servants. So the apostle Paul, (laughs) and what is he describing himself as? Servant of Christ Jesus. And then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Again, for me personally, I love that because as a kid who was raised as a Catholic, I thought for sure, saints could only be dead people. Right? Like, you, you had to be dead, first of all. and You had to go through a, a process of sanctification or whatever, what did they call it in the Catholic. And, and so when I first started, well, hold on. Why are they writing to... No. Saints, we're all, those of us here today who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ... Yeah, I know you're a sinner saved by grace, but you're a saint in Christ. You're part of the household of God. You're part of the church. And that's how the Lord sees you and wants you to see yourself, even though we know the truth, we all mess up. And so there they are, the whole church then, and with the overseers and the deacons. And so I feel this is a significant thing to confirm. These two, one in office and one a role, of the leaders in the local church. And so the question that comes out of that for me this week is, and I'm thinking of some of you, I don't know all of your backgrounds, I don't, I know some, but is that the norm that you've seen in the previous churches you've been part of? Is, is it the norm in the previous churches you've been part of where there's clear teaching about elders and deacons, and, and there's actually people identified in the church as elders and deacons? And again, I'm, I'm not pointing fingers and trying to be critical, I'm just... This is why we're doing this, because we go through the Word of God and it teaches us this. See, from my personal experience, I, I didn't see that all the time. Oftentimes, what I saw is the, the CEO lead pastor guy, right? And, and he really was the, the guy in charge. And, and sure, there were others that were involved in leadership, but it wasn't always highlighted, and, and of course, there's titles sometimes that you see in churches where there's this hierarchy, and the, rather than use elders and deacons, sometimes we see titles like director, right? And and, and other titles. Again, not to be critical, but that I'm just wondering why? Why would we not do that? An illustration for you might be this. Oftentimes, um, and, and this might be helpful to you, I don't know, but oftentimes young men and women who uh, decide to leave Squamish, which I always say to most of you, don't ever, don't, don't do that, please. Don't stay here, please. We need you here. But no, but yeah, it happens, right? Young men and women, older too, but they have to move away for work, whatever it might be. And they might be moving to wherever and and they will have experienced a church here that they loved and, and so they'll often ask me, hey, can you recommend a church in Spasm? <clears throat> okay, not Spasm, but you know, wherever, like it could be Halifax or whatever. And they'll actually ask me that and, and I appreciate that. And, and sometimes they'll be going to some place, and I'll be going, yeah, I, actually, I really do know a good church there, and I will recommend that church. But when I don't, here's what I do. I say, well, I, I don't, but uh, let me let me do some research for you, and maybe I'll ask some guys. But the simplest thing that I do is I just go out and Google churches in Charlottetown or churches in Halifax, wherever. And they, they all come up, right? And I, I, I avoid the, the ones that are... Obviously cults and, and uh, start, start clicking on the the come on and if you need oh, I'll tell you no but I, <laughs> I go and look at their website and um, and, I, and then I'll go to the about page and I'll look for two things: statement of faith statement of faith. It's really important. We have one on our website it tells you, a prospective new member of their church, what they believe. I feel like churches aren't willing to put a statement of faith on their website. It's like, okay. But then secondly, look at their staff and their leadership structure. I do. And then when I see a a church that has pastors, shepherds, uh, elders, overseers, and even deacons, I'm like, okay, that might be one you should go check out. So just for your own future reference, okay, it's a little bit of a hint for you as to what I might actually suggest. Okay, so now let's look at the qualifications of a deacon with that preamble, just to get us to the succession and and hopefully help us understand this really important role in the local church. Verse 8 says this, and it'll be on screen for you. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So, our English word here for deacons uh, is a translation of the Greek word diakonos, uh, which literally means servant. That's, that's what it means. It just literally means servant. I remember one time being part of a, a cadre or a, you know, a, a seminar group of, like I don't know, 20, 30 pastors, and we were going through church leadership uh, training and discussions about elders and deacons, and one, one guy made a really good point. He goes, you know, I think we need to be careful here. Whenever we teach this, yes, there's a role for deacons in the local church. But we need to also make sure that every one of our members of the church understands there's something called the priesthood of all believers and that we're all servants of King Jesus. Amen? So, you know, I've said this before. I anoint you all deacons, okay? We're all servants of Christ Jesus. So as we've already seen in Acts example... There were distinct role differences between the apostles and the seven men nominated to serve in the church and, and to deal with the current issue of the proportioning of food for everyone. The apostles were to focus on prayer, preaching the word, and apostolic activities like planting churches, beginning new ministries, and leading the church. The servants, the diaconos, were set up to serve the apostles and the church. This then translates today to the elders whose role is that of praying, of ruling and governing the church, caring for, shepherding, pastoring, providing direction, and the preaching and teaching of God's word in the gathering of the church. Deacons are those to whom specific tasks of service are assigned. Uh, Two distinctions should be understood here first. Uh, This is not a hierarchy. It's not like, you know, we the elders, I'm I'm your pastor, but I'm also an elder here at the Rock Church. We're we're not the the most important guys here. We're not the ones who are in charge of this church. Again, we're a plurality, we're leading and governing. So it's not a hierarchy. Uh, The elders, like all of us here, are servants. We are servants of the members of the church. We're servants of King Jesus, of course, first of all. But we're servants of all of you, the members. But by extension, then, we're servants also of the deacons because they're members of the church. And so that's a really important thing. It's not about status. It's not about status at all. It's it's more, and it's not about, it's really more about, it's not about value. It's about function in the local church. So we're equal, but there are roles and there are functions that are really important that we see. So the words here that we see to begin this, these, this particular verse are the words, deacons likewise. So as we saw with elders, deacons must be marked by a few very important character traits. As I was reflecting on these character traits, it struck me, and I've known this again for years, but <clears throat> what you don't see for elders or deacons, thank you, following people, is the idea that, okay, they're, they're men, right? So you don't see the idea that they're supposed to be macho. You know, they're supposed to be really tough well, spiritually strong, you know, or or even the words strong, bold, or courageous. Although those could be important character traits for men and for women, but you don't see that. They are instead, as we see here, the first one is dignified. (laughs) Deacons are to be dignified. The term normally refers to something that is honorable, respectable, esteemed, or worthy, and is, of course, closely uh, related to the word respectable, which is one of the qualifications for an elder. So again, very equal in relation to dignity, be respected by the members of the church, not (laughs) double-tongued. Now, this is not one that's actually laid out for elders, but this is good. I mean, it should be. It's for all of us as Christians. Not someone who says one thing to certain people and a different thing to, pe- to other people, right? Ever met anyone like that? Ever occasionally been someone like that? Right. Someone who says one thing but does the other? You know, do as I say but not as I do? That kind of a... No, not at all. But then it also goes on to say, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gains. So, so one positive, very important character trait and three negatives, Uh, the three negatives I would suggest are actually disqualifiers. They're they're not things like, well, we'll put up with it for a while. (laughs) No, and we're going to see because there's an important thing that must take place. And so verses 9 and 10 say this. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be, here it is, tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. So the saying, the mystery of faith, is simply one of Paul's, it's one of his sayings that he says many, many times, and we'll see it at the very end of our passage today. It, it, it's the gospel. It, it's, it's, it's the way that the gospel is presented. So this is the mystery of the faith. Therefore, the statement refers to the need for deacons to hold firmly to the gospel without wavering. It. it, it also invokes the idea that they must also agree to the statement of faith that's held by the church and to the things that the church believes and teaches. And so there should be an alignment with the way they are leading and being called to being a deacon, very much aligned with the elders and obviously the members of the Rock Church, or any church for that matter. So this means that a deacon's behavior must be consistent with their beliefs. So it's important that we know what they believe, right? That that testing is important. That's why Paul says to us, deacons must be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. No one's perfect, but again, there's a testing process. You heard me last week talk about elders. We take prospective elders at the Rock Church through a six to nine month training to show them what good ministry looks like, look what it looks to be an elder, come to our meetings once a month, well, there's also a testing process that's not laid out clearly in Scripture, but we're going to see there's a, of, there's a couple of things that we can, we can see that we should be seeing in them. And it's like what I said last week, what a, a wise man said to me when I asked him, well, how do I know if I'm an elder or I'm called to be an elder? And he said, Glenn, it's pretty simple. You will already be doing the work of an elder. Same thing with a deacon, as we're going to see. So that's what Paul tells us. And then he says this in verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. I'm smiling because this one verse presents some significant challenges for us here today, but for churches and for leaders. Why is this added, Paul? Why did you add this about the wives? He didn't say that in the call to an elder earlier that the wives also, now you would expect that, right? Can a man be an elder if his wife is an unbeliever? Might be difficult. Can a a man be an elder if his wife is like, really not walking the talk? Very difficult. So it's added here. And so first note, as I mentioned, wives are not mentioned when it comes to qualifications of elders, but secondly, there are clear qualifications for the wives. That should be a hint I feel, we feel as a church, and many others would agree, towards something. So the question for us today is this. What are you saying, Paul? Are you saying that women can be deacons in the church? Hold on. He continues in verses 12 and 13. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith, the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So now when we read these verses, it seems just like the elders, that there's a requirement that the elder be married, right? Now we went over this last week and yes, there, there's the requirement for that, but then we also ask some questions. Well, does that mean a, a man you know, can't be single and become an elder? Or, and also, he has to have his children, plural, in subject, submission. And, and so, does that mean he has to have at least two children? So, is, is a man who's married and, and doesn't have children yet, or never had children, not qualified to become an elder? And so, we looked at that last week, and we said, well, hold on, we have to we have to be careful not to have too tight of a fist on these things. And so, we came to understand last week that the role of elder requires much wisdom, and and it's required for us to consider various situations. The man who I told you last week, and I mentioned this week, uh, encouraged me that it's about already doing the work of an elder, was an elder in a church. He passed away a few years ago in Vancouver for 35 years. He was a single man, never married. He was an incredibly godly elder. Why did he become an elder in that church, although he was not married? Well, because he was a very qualified Bible teacher and a really strong, godly man, and quite frankly, at that time, early on in the life of that church, on 16th Avenue in Vancouver, there were no other qualified men. And so the church put him forward to be an elder in that church, and he was a great elder for many, many, many years. So much wisdom is required, and a closed hand can make the leadership of a church very difficult. I want to give you an illustration, an example of a woman who Janice and I supported as a missionary in the Philippines for I think six, seven years. Her first name was Ellie. Um, She was a a missionary at a mission in the Philippines, which was primarily a a school uh, in a very poor area uh, for kids and of course, families. And over the years as a single woman, she was pretty much the, the, the leader of the whole mission there. Uh, she was not only the, the school teacher and, and the, the planter of it, for, for, for that matter, um, but she, she held, you know, Bible studies. And there came a time when she went to her leadership, I believe, of the church she went to in Richmond, and even to those who were on her mailing list, and also those of us who were supporting her financially, and said, I got a bit of a dilemma here. Um, some of the families, you know, like, they, they, they're not Christians, and, but they're, they're, they're coming, and they're seeing me do Bible studies for the... The kids, and and some of them are are the husband and the wife, and I'm doing the teaching, and and some of them are asking me, "Can can we do a church on Sunday morning? And of course, the answer is no. That wasn't the answer. Her church board in Richmond and those of us who were supporting her said, yeah, you, you should do that. And, and, you know, and one of the main reasons why we, we did that was because she said to us, well, then you need to join me in prayer that God will send some godly men to this mission field to help me in this mission field and also be able to do this. That was her heart about it. Did we continue to support her? Sure did. Did the Lord answer her in our prayer? He did. Just an example that as we look at these things, I feel like we need to be careful on how, closed-handed we might be at certain times. So again, like the subject of elders, I've been researching and teaching about deacons for a long time, about their roles. And I can tell you that there are basically two primary views uh, of theologians, commentators, and even pastors in churches today. The two primary, there are some, you know, in-between versions of this, but the two primary versions are, no, women cannot become deacons, and the other is, yes, women can become deacons. So where do we stand as a church? Well, again, if you remember last week, I, I said this. It's kind of like my prayer has been for 25 years. Lord, just show me one place in the New Testament scripture where a woman has been appointed by a, an apostle or another elder to be an elder and a preacher in the local church because then we would have to take a serious relook at it. Amen? Haven't found that. Do we have that for deacons? Uh, yeah, we do. Look in your Bibles, it'll be on screen for you. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 say this. Paul writing to the church in Rome, he says this. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, a, what? A diakonos, a servant of the church at Chancreia. She's a servant of the church in the church. And he goes on, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you, for she has been a patron to many and myself as well. Patron is is an extension of the diakonos type word where she's not only helping and serving the church and the apostle Paul, but she's also financially supporting the church. So we don't know much more about her. And this, by the way, is this is a typical commendation letter. Uh, it's where we get today the idea that, you know, if you're leaving the Rock Church and you go to another church, it, you, it's, it's kind of passé today, but it was the case. Some of us who are older here today, we know about letters of commendation, right? Where, where you get a letter from your previous church and you take it to the church you're going to and you give it to the pastors and the elders there and they go, we receive you with open arms. As long as the church you're coming from is not a weird cult, okay? Again, I'm using that word. I don't know why. Um, that's what this is. It's a letter of commendation. And so we have this here for her. And Paul is calling her a diakonos. And so this is an important thing that we would be able to understand. That there's, there's one aspect of the deacon role that is different than the elders. It does not say that a deacon must be able to teach or apt to teach like the elders. And so our position as the Rock Church is that we have, in the last 14 years, appointed women as deacons. We do want to, in the future, appoint more. We're in good company. If you study uh, the history of the church, uh, going all the way back to the days of the apostles, once the last apostle leaves, there are deacons in the local churches all the way from 100 AD until today. In fact, one of the things most people don't understand is, again, me, me, the ex-Catholic, we all think they have, you know, the pope, the cardinals, the bishops, the priests. They have deacons. They have deacons in the Catholic church. Interesting as well that during the Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s, some very conservative men highlighted the idea that deacons was a role in the church for both men and women. One name for some of you will be like, really? Yeah, his name is John Calvin. (laughs) John Calvin promoted the idea that, and upheld the idea that women could be deacons in the local church. Modern day people, well, you all know, My late, the late, late, my favorite pastor preacher, of late anyway, Tim Keller and also John Piper also would say women can become deacons in the local church. So as I said, in the past 14 years we have had deacons in the local church. We we want to have more deacons in the Rock Church. So lastly, before we conclude this morning, the question of is this: What do deacons do? Uh, What do deacons do? Well. Again, it's not clearly pointed out in scripture that they, this, this role, this, 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 but, but, there, but there's, it's kind of like this. It's like what every elder pastor would hope every member of the Rock Church would do is come up to them and say, what needs to be done here that no one else is doing? <laughs> That's a fantastic thing when someone comes up to an elder or pastor and says, what can I, how can I help? I'm going to anoint you a deacon okay? Provided there's testing and all the rest of it. That's really, really... So some of them would be this, would be mercy ministries, people who have a heart and and really want to be part of a mission and missions organizations and supporting them. Uh, Operation Christmas Child is a mercy ministry of sorts, right? Uh, Also benevolence ministries, facilities. This is our building, by the way. I don't want to have to tell you specifically who was here washing the windows this past week and cleaning the toilets upstairs. Okay, I will. My wife. We need a deacon <laughs> of the facilities, of the beacon, of the, who who will not just do it themselves, but raise up a team to do that. Stewardship, financial stewardship is another one, which helping the elders with the offerings on Sundays. George, he's not here this morning, was our stewardship, our deacon of stewardship ministries for 10 years. God bless him. He retired a year and a half ago. We haven't filled that role. So that's a good example. Lastly, on that note, I'm going to say this because I I don't have time this morning. I want to close with our last few verses. There's some books in the back right there beside the the study guides by the offering table. Look what it says. It says deacons. There's seven or eight of them. If any of you would like to know more about what it means to be a deacon in the church and how you may serve in that role, you can have a free copy. They're at the back. I would encourage you to do that. Lastly, Paul writes these words in verses 14 and 15, the words uh, that we've been going over every week. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, So I, I kind of look at chapters 2 and 3 as not only Paul outlining what it looks like, what the liturgy of the church should look like, who should do what in the church, how we should all be engaged and participate in the gathering of the church on a Sunday. But then he offers us, really, a, a benediction. He closes with the perfect benediction. So let me read it for you, verse 16, where he says this, Great indeed we confess this is a confession of faith, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Again, who is he? He is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Pray with me, would you? Yeah, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, uh, for this day. Thank you. Thank you we get to gather here, Lord. I thank you for every man, woman uh, here downstairs today and also those serving upstairs and all the kids. Lord, thank you for our church body. Lord, Holy Spirit, would would you speak to all of us here today, to men and women gathered here today about your church, about how you want that to look here at the Rock Church, about how you want us individually as men and women to serve you, Lord Jesus, as we also serve one another in this body, in this church. And then out of that, Lord, out of that, we go into this community and we love this community and we serve our neighbors. We serve and love our neighbors as ourselves. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just bless us and encourage us today as we go. I thank you for the rest of our gathering this morning that we're going to break bread and we're going to remember you, Lord Jesus, uh yeah